Thanks for downloading show 119 of the C-Suite podcast, the latest in our special series of episodes that we're recording in partnership with the European PR agency Taito and their own Without Borders podcast, where we are interviewing leaders of unicorn companies to find out about the key issues, pain points and challenges that startups face and how they can address them with a strategic approach to marketing and communications. My name is Russell Goldsmith and having interviewed nine leaders of European unicorns so far, uh, this time around our focus switches to North America and so along with my co-host for this series of interviews, Taito's founder Brendan Craigie, uh, we're thrilled to be joined online from Boston in the US by Mike Mazzaro, CEO of Flywire, a high growth vertical payments company that gained unicorn status in February 2020. So welcome to the show Mike, we should probably start by you giving us a quick introduction to the business. Sure. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So Flywire is a vertical payments company. We focus on the combination of what we believe is software and payments coming together, which is a major trend in tech. We start with an education vertical. It was our first vertical about 10 years ago. So think of that as helping uh, foreign students attend Harvard, Yale, uh, You know, at this point, 1,600 universities across 32 different countries. We then added additional vertical markets, including healthcare, travel, and now business payments. As we continue to add new verticals, new geographies, really what, what is unique about what we do is we, we actually have a way in which we move the money. So we have a way to move the money. We have one shared tech platform for payment functions, and then we have vertical software that's super targeted for integration points within these industries, use cases. And we kind of bring all that together for our clients. We're about uh, 500 Flymates or employees across 12 offices globally. I love that term, Flymates. Excellent. I mentioned in in the intro that you reached unicorn status in in February 2020, which was, if I've got this right, after a funding round of $120 How has becoming a unicorn changed the perception of the company? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an interesting one. So we've raised a, a little $250 million or so of venture capital total. Uh, you know, investors are folks like Spark, Fidelity, Bain, Tomasic, which is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Singapore, and Goldman Sachs most recently. Those are the major investors. And, uh, you know, I would say if you ask Flymates internally, I'm probably one of the most uh, anti-unicorn type branding people, heavily focused on execution, on all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into building the company for 10 years. So, you know, it's nice to it's nice to have the label. It's nice to to be held up as one of the uh, hallmark companies in the fintech industry. But at the same time, there's a lot more work to do. So I would say they, they probably heard us celebrated for about 30 seconds inside the company. And then we went on to uh, to 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 doing what we need to do. Brilliant. In kind of preparing for this chat with you, Mike, I mean, I think we're just reflecting on the fact that everyone's been talking about payments for a long time and the kind of the innovation and the disruption going on in that space. And I was curious to kind of look into it a bit more and saw that in one of the recent articles that Boston Consulting Group mentioned that the area of global payments is growing at roughly 6% annually. Well, I'm kind of just curious, like what's driving the growth in, in revenue of, in payments? So there's definitely a digitization that's happening. So when you just think globally in general, right, people are shifting away from cash, they're shifting to more digital. Um, I'd also say that the world is, you know, prior to COVID at least, was getting much smaller, right? People were picking up, they were traveling, they were interested in seeing the world, learning in different places, you know, potentially living in different places. So again, I think, I think that created a, a lot more digitization, you know, uh, and, and, and even, even obviously the drive to e-commerce, which is, you know, increased during, 
during the pandemic. Uh, so I think that's all trying to start to drive those types of interactions that people are having. So I, I think that's a big part of it. The other thing I would highlight is uh, when it comes to payments in particular, people used to go and select a payments vendor. And I think one of the other big shifts is that payments are kind of embedded in everything we do, right? I often tell the story in New York City where, you know, prior to COVID, I was hopping out of a taxi cab, didn't pay the taxi cab driver, thought he was an Uber, which offended the taxi cab driver. And that was a good example where payments are so embedded in my day-to-day experience that I didn't even realize there was a transaction there. And I think that's what's happening with software as well. When you're delivering software like we are to our clients, they're sitting there and saying, well, geez, I don't have to make a payment decision now, right? If payments are part of the offering, then that's taking complexity away from me. That's taking decision-making away from me. I don't have to be an expert in payments. So I think when you do that, when you have more seamlessly integrated software with payments, I think usage levels also can kind of go up because it's just a better experience. That's really fascinating. And yeah, it helps to kind of put that that figure into context. Kind of picking up on another thing that caught our eye, um, a piece, I think it was in Forbes, was talking about how this is a space that is kind of increasingly very margin thin and that fintech companies to kind of be commercially successful really need to be sort of seeking out more vertical specific challenges to fix, which I, I guess that is an area that you've really focused on. Yeah, you know, and, and again, I, I think for us, it, it's, um, you know, the payment economics at some point, uh, you know, it, it you can look at payments and say it's very commoditized, right? The cost of picking one vendor to process a credit card versus another can be very small, right? So people are trying to differentiate on the processing, their, the tech platforms that are behind them, the interfaces, right? It's part of the reason you've seen such consolidation inside the credit card processing sector, right? Where there's been massive acquisitions in, in consolidation in what is traditional merchant processing. And again, I think part of why you see software kind of coming into this mix is you can deliver a lot of software to clients delivering a ton of value. And that value can then be monetized either through software licensing or payment economics or some combination of both. Right. So if you actually have the payments integrated in with the software, you end up with a little more, I'd say, flexibility when it comes to monetization. Give you plenty, plenty of good examples. You know, if you think of the, the what the software can do to add value. So in some of our sectors, like education and healthcare in particular, the concept of paying a large amount of money all at once. Uh, you know, isn't that common, right? If you're going to send your child to to Yale or, you know, uh, Oxford, right? You you may not be able to kind of make that massive lump sum payment at one time. And so this concept of a payment plan exists. And that's saying, hey, I can split my payment into five installments. It's a non-interest bearing component, right? It's just pretty much the university extending different payment terms because they know the ability to maybe pay $60,000 equivalent in a lump sum may, may be difficult for people. And so when you look at that, you kind of have a situation where you, you have software adding a ton of value to both the payer, but also to the, to the end client, in our case, the university, right? So it's solving a complex problem that they have, but at the same time, uh, your monetization is, is through software and through payments. Brilliant. That's interesting. Mike, you touched on COVID a little bit just before there. One of the things we we were wondering in terms of, I mean, obviously we're recording this, you know, after a pretty difficult year. What impact has coronavirus had on on your business, and how have you had to adapt it? It was definitely quite an experience. Uh, you know, we had we have um, sixty five or so flymates in in Asia Pacific, so uh, a number of folks started to be impacted even in you know January, February, in places like Singapore, Tokyo, Shanghai, and so you know we got a kind of early view than a lot of other probably tech startups had. 
of what the potential implications were of having people shift and work work remotely, some of the stresses that happen to people in, in kind of this environment. And so, you know, when it, when it happened here in the United States uh, and, you know, pretty much the rest of the world in, in mid-March, our first focus, like many, was to make sure we could transition well to home, to make sure people had the equipment they needed, they could perform the, their job to the to the best of the ability at at a at a home office, and then you know that actually happened relatively easy for us. The transition, you know, we we were a globally distributed team. We were used to a lot of collaboration tools. We were, you know, we have video conference embedded in every television in every office, and so that actually wasn't a big transition. The harder part for us was actually helping our clients transition. Right, if you think of some of the top universities, top medical hospitals even travel companies, right? All of them were significantly impacted with with COVID. And they were also transitioning to work from home. And so you would often see things not working, right? They didn't have access to maybe systems the right way. They didn't, you know, they had to adapt maybe their billing dates, their invoicing dates, things in which they were doing had to change. And so our team spent a lot of time and effort making either changes to the platform, changes to customizations for the clients, configuring different features for them that they may have not utilized before. And so that was our uh, a big focus. It actually gave us a kind of a rallying c- cry kind of around how do we help our clients navigate this? And in many ways, tried to, tried to defocus it about kind of ourselves and our experience and focus on what we could do to help our clients. So I think that helped us a lot initially. Of course, we did all the financial planning you immediately start to look and say, okay, we, we were fortunate. We just raised $120 million in, in February. Thank goodness we uh, kept the pedal down on the, uh, on the fundraise. But you, you, of course, you sit there, you look at your spending, you look at, we had a plan to hire 120 new flymates this year. And, you know, of course, that wasn't going to happen in this environment. So, uh, you know, you adjusted your financial plans and then you tried to navigate. I'd say we we definitely played defense for probably that two to three month period between you know March and I'd say early mid June, and then we started to say, okay, how do we how do we start playing more offense? Right, like this is going to be a bit of the new normal for a long time. My belief is that people people want to play more offense than they do defense. How do you how do you look for opportunities to innovate? How do you look for new products to build, new markets to enter? And so that's really where we started our efforts in, in kind of, I'd say, July and August. And again, just trying to support our people, address some of the wellness, mental health issues that everybody's facing in a stressful time. So that's kind of how we navigated. That's great. Moving on the, the discussion to one of our favorite topics, which is around communications. We've talked a little bit about how the payment space is on the surface of it, not necessarily in your specific area, but on the surface of it, very noisy and crowded. What's been your approach to kind of raising awareness and differentiating Flywire in the market? I guess a lot of other companies, they kind of go after the massive payment opportunity, right? You'll hear companies talk about how much money's moving around the world. You'll hear them talk about the digitization of, of, of cash, They'll talk about these kind of massive, you know, TAMs, uh, total addressable markets. You'll hear them kind of talk about these huge challenges. For us, we've always taken a slightly different approach, right? We look at we look at our areas, right? Like all the money moving around the world is actually moving around the world for different reasons. And our belief is that you have to actually understand those reasons. You have to dive into the use case or the vertical or the actual problem statement you're trying to solve. I think that's probably one of the things that differentiates us the most. In early days, frankly, everyone thought we were just kind of this niche player who was going after this small education market. And our plans were always much bigger and broader, right? We looked and said, hey, the, there are certain industries that have been poorly served by payments. 
they don't just need you know credit card capture. They actually need more more software, more comprehensive solution. Oftentimes, the payments are larger. They're more complex. They're global. And our belief was that that was part of the big reason why so much of that money wasn't digitized well. And so we started in education, but expanded out. So when when you when you look at that, I think a lot of people looked at us and said, "Geez, you know, let's see if they can actually get outside of education. Can they get into other verticals? Can they get into other countries?" Can they offer additional products? And so again, we, we, we're, we're hyper-focused on kind of the problem we're solving uh, and then have scaled a bit different than kind of casting this, this big net, this big story, even though ultimately we're kind of going after that same large uh, total addressable market. It sounds like you're very much on the hunt and on, on the lookout for those much more complex challenges that need to be fixed. That seems to be a recurring theme of, the, of what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, and I would also say just even with, even with cards, right? Like for, for Flywire, probably about 20% of our volume is over credit cards. So if you think of, you know, 80% of our volume is over bank accounts, right? Effectively, part of that's due to the transaction size, the complication of the payment. Uh, some of it's due to the, just the ability for someone to put, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 or pounds on a credit card, right? There's certain types of limits that a lot of consumers still have. So again, that's a, that's a major differentiator, right? Most of the traditional payment processors are oftentimes merchant processors for cards, right? Point of sale, kiosk type payments, maybe e-commerce. Uh, and so again, we're, we're actually casting a much broader net and we're digitizing a lot of things that used to go over maybe uh, bank wires or uh, even checks here in the United States or, or you know, paper checks are still quite significant. So people used to be using those mechanisms and are really starting to digitize. Turning a little bit to, you know, explore some of the values of Flyware. I know that we touched on collaboration a minute ago. I see that that's one of your values. How have you managed to build this, your company culture in sort of such a fast moving, high growth and I guess global way? Yeah, well, you know, it's probably probably getting a bit of a theme, but we actually had, you know, ups and downs early on in the evolution of the company, right? We actually had a spot where we almost sold the business probably eight to nine years ago. And thankfully, we, we didn't. And we focused on, uh, you know, our investors supported us through, through finding product market fit, and we're able to really accelerate. And I, I would say we picked our head up probably about maybe three years, three and a half years into the journey, and realized that, you know, we had a team of about 40, and we were going to have to scale in the next part of our journey to probably, you know, triple that. And that was the moment in which Everybody kept referencing how great our culture was, but we didn't have like the fancy posters on the walls and the and the motivational statements and uh, you know everything that that people normally would put out there. And so, I actually embarked on a on a program internally with Flymates, obviously contributing, which was you know, let's unearth what everybody keeps talking about, right? Because everybody who visits us, our investors, bank partners, everyone's like, oh, you guys got a great culture, right? They they all spoke about what they saw consistent across flymates, even across very distant locations, right? And, and I found that fascinating. And so it, it, I, like, I like to say we're, we unearthed our, our values, right? And our culture, because it was there. We just had never put words to it. And, uh, and before we went and hired another 100 people, we felt like we needed to know exactly what, what, what those traits were so that we could look for them in others and, and, and kind of grow. And so, uh, you know, that's where, you know, things like global collaboration came uh, from part of it was a forcing mechanism. Frankly, early on, one of our biggest challenges was was navigating global collaboration. Right, we didn't have the money to kind of fly ourselves around the world to see each other, 
And so you kind of had to use technology the best you could. And, and, and you did have to kind of get on an airplane and go see people and build those relationships because you then had to go remote again. And so the, by far, one of the probably most important values we've had. Another one that's kind of top of mind is authenticity. Again, it, it kind of it covers a couple things for me. It covers a level of transparency, uh, of directness, bringing kind of true self to work, which I think has lots of tie-ins. A lot of people aren't in work environments where you're actually allowed or encouraged to bring kind of uh, your entire self to work, right? Bring a bit of your personal life in, you know, let people get to know you, know who you are as well. Also, just in the transparency, I've had experiences in my career where you would get into tech companies and and you'd have CEOs and others say, ask me any question, right? Like, oh, we're, we're super open and transparent. And then the person asked the question, how much money's on the balance sheet or how many shares are outstanding on the cap table? And all of a sudden, every, you know, any question isn't quite, uh, quite what the person meant. And I always wanted to push that here at Flywire. And so we've had this level of transparency that's been, uh, we've been able to maintain for the entire 10 years so far. So, you know, there's truly no, no bad question to ask. There is no question I won't answer to a Flymate. And that's, you know, that's even happened during pretty, pretty challenging times. So those values, I think, have held up you know, kind of for a while, we may insert a new one or two here and there, especially after COVID and some of the traits we've learned that we have uh, inside COVID. But those are two good examples of our of our core values. It's great when you get the opportunity to take some of those bad experiences you've had in the past and then kind of correct them in the future, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's 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 part of the journey. I mean, we we actually have this great mural that's on our wall in our Valencia, Spain office, and it literally shows you know, pretty much all the major milestones of the company, uh, even ones that were not great, right? Times in which we had to, you know, uh, either cut staff or we had a huge amount of uncertainty. Again, I think when you read about tech, when you read, uh, you know, TechCrunch or any of the, you know, online publications, it seems like every startup successful, right? Not the case, right? 95% of them fail, it sounds like everything's, you know, an overnight success, right? It's, it's, it's not. It's a grind. There's a lot of work that goes into building these companies. And I think, you know, I think, I think there is value to actually focusing on where you didn't get it right. And I think people believe that when you're able to highlight those things, I think you're human, first of all. And I think the second part is, you, as you said, you learn from them and you, you, you avoid that rock the second time around. That's cool. Side, side note, I'm actually sat in um, Valencia in Spain. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, that's, um, that's a cool place to have an it's office. an amazing spot. Yeah, brilliant. And then I think um, just another area that struck us as you being quite forthright is around your commitment to diversity, equity and inclusion. Obviously, the kind of very prominent issues at, at the moment around the world. I'm just curious to get your perspective on what you think the role is of business in kind of driving that agenda and kind of how can companies like Flywire make a difference? You know, it's it's obviously a critical, you know, critical thing on, on the mind of so many people. Um, for us, again, you know, having a value around authenticity, it's been something we've tried to push for a long time internally, right? Of, hey, we want a diverse group of flymates. It's naturally diverse just with the geographic footprint of the company. At the same time, every one of our offices has a diversity challenge, right? Something they're looking to improve, right? Whether it's maybe it's our tech team's gender composition, maybe it's certain type of religious diversity in a certain geographic part of the world, you know, maybe it's the male to female ratio in our sales team in a certain area. So there are all types of, and I think every company has those types of challenges. And the key is to how do you, how do you start moving forward? How do you start improving those numbers? How do you set goals? 
hold, hold yourself collectively as a team accountable for those goals around diversity. And, and one of the biggest learnings I'd say in the last few months for me has been the power of the team, right? If you unleash a team, we have a great group called Flymates First, uh, our diversity and inclusion team, volunteer team of Flymates who are passionate about those types of topics. And that team's actually helped navigate us through a lot of different decisions recently, right? Of Hey, how are we going to look at our KPIs, right? In what markets, how do we capture our KPIs around diversity, right? What's okay to ask in certain regions and what is not okay to ask in certain regions? How do we make sure we're looking at diverse talent pools? In some ways, it isn't rocket science. If you keep finding the same types of people, you're likely looking in the same type of spots, right? And so how do you broaden out your networks and actually target different pockets of talent that you may not have found before? My experience over the last few months is that it doesn't take it doesn't take much, right? Even even if you go and and start, you know, go 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 follow five or ten people that maybe aren't in your normal circle geographically or religiously or, or, or industry-wise, and you will start to see pockets of information on places like Twitter and LinkedIn that you've never seen before, right? And pockets of talent that you can recruit from. And so that's been a huge you know, learning. There's a long way to go. Unfortunately, I think it's still a generational issue. I don't think there's an overnight fix. I tell my team often that it isn't about tweeting hashtags from your couch. It's actually about getting out there, you know, looking at what you're doing every day, making change, having an active role in that change in the community as well as in, in professional life. One thing that we did to help foster that is we actually created um, two things we call Fly Better Days. I mentioned we're good on branding. But again, in, in parts of kind of the social injustice, unrest, and, and racism issues that have happened in the world, like it, it just became overwhelming to so many people inside the company and outside. We just said, we're going to create two paid days. People should go give their time and their efforts to causes that they care about, right? So it allowed Flymates to go out and potentially participate in a peaceful protest. It allowed them to maybe focus on getting people out to vote. Some people use that for all types of different causes, children's groups, et cetera. And again, it was a way to say, hey, we can, we can put money where our mouth is, if you will, right? And, uh, and say, you have two paid days. We know our Flymates want to do these things. Sometimes they don't feel they can step away from work. And so we encourage them to do it, to take, take a picture, post it in the Slack channel, share what they did. We've had a great response with that. And it, and, and it focuses, I think, people on take action, right? Don't, again, don't just talk about what we hope the world will be. Let's, let's find ways we can actually go out and, and start making it that way. That's a great initiative. I mean, just building on, on this sort of element, I, I guess, around internal comms, because you're talking about speaking with colleagues or, or flymates, as you, as you call them. How do you balance that need, though, to talk to individuals and then teams and then the whole company as well, especially given at the moment, well, you've talked about how you've grown the team as well. So there's obviously a lot more of you now than there was a few years ago with geographically spread and also obviously with people working remotely at the moment. So that adds a few levels of challenges in there as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I used to probably spend 150,000 miles a year in the air and much of my exec team would as well. And and we, you know, it would be very common to be in a Flywire office in Valencia and see people from our Singapore office or Tokyo office. And that was just kind of commonplace. Obviously, the pandemic changed that. So we've had to get more creative. I'd say we've probably tried three different formats of all company meetings because everybody is on these on these video conferences so often. How do you how do you not take up more and more of their time to communicate the information? 
when they're constantly on these, these conferences to do their jobs. And so we've been recording short videos, trying to give people bite-sized content that they can consume throughout their day, or you know, sometimes people even catch up on them over the weekend. So it gets information out there without forcing people to kind of sit there and listen in a, in a forum. So we've been trying things like that. I've been known to drop a, a, a Zoom link in a Slack channel of a couple hundred people and say, I'm on this Zoom for the next hour if anybody wants to drop in. And things like that, I think, create a little spontaneity in a world where, I guess, serendipity may be gone for at least right now. Everything seems so planned. Those are some of the things we've done. Uh, again, trying to create pockets of socially distant activities that people can participate in if that's acceptable in the region in which they're in. Giving people, we gave people stipends so that, hey, go go find a flymate, get a coffee, right? Go go get a go get a drink, go you know order a pizza and go to a park, right? Um, those kind of things to try and encourage people to get together, even if you couldn't get together with large groups. We even pulled off a, a pretty crazy thing. I think it was, geez, two weeks ago. We, we sometimes rent locations for retreats, right? And we had a, a place that had 20 bedrooms. Uh, it was actually in the state of Maine here in the United States, about two and a half hours north of Boston. And we delayed it because we couldn't actually go go there during COVID, delayed it till September. And we were going to, you know, we already put our money down. We had, didn't have anybody that was going to use it. My executive team was distributed around the world. So we couldn't get here to use it. And we decided to open it up for Flymates. And so we called it the Fly Lodge. And, uh, you know, here, here was a 20,000 square foot house with, you know, independent bedrooms for anyone that went, you know, you had to get COVID tested before you could go into the house effectively. And people loved it, right? They actually got a chance to see people again, uh, you know, work through the week, just have a different experience and actually gave us, you know, uh, an idea that we hadn't thought of maybe months before, but maybe trying to replicate it in different parts of the world, right? Where we can't maybe cross borders, but within certain regions, there's acceptable practices. There's ways in which you can get tested, ensure safety of everybody. So, you know, we may try something like that to help keep people engaged. But yeah, it's not easy. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's uh, people do miss community. And I think, I think, frankly, you know, the future of work isn't going to be kind of staring at the screen. There's going to be some, some return to some, some, some level of interaction, even if it's not the level of commuting and, uh, and challenge we, we all had in, in just dealing with the old world. Tremendous. And what about your role as an external spokesperson and representative of, of the business? What's your view on that? And, and what have you learned along the way in the 10 years of, of Flywire? It's not something that, you know, I always, everyone always asks, you know, are you an extrovert, introvert? I'm, I'm a massive introvert, actually. And everybody's often surprised because I think I'm good at, I think, faking it. But my level of interaction at a certain point, I kind of need the downtime and the focus. And so for me, being the external kind of spokesperson is, has been something I've had to kind of grow into and, and realize how to kind of navigate just with my own personality. What I would say is I absolutely love the industry that I'm in. I've you know, been in tech for 20 years, a lot of that in payments and tech. So building up that network has been amazing, right? Obviously, uh, the, we have a lot of great partners. You know, We have some of the top banks in the world that are partners, the Citibanks, Deutsche Banks, Bank of America, Barclays, those types of folks. We also have uh, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, UnionPay, Alipay, PayPal. So you have these kind of amazing companies who have been so good to us over the years and supporting us as we're trying to do something new and different. And so, you know, having those relationships and getting to interact with those companies 
talk about partnerships externally and stuff has been great. And again, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in culture. I'm a big believer in people need to be working on things that they're passionate about. And if you're not passionate about it, go find what you're passionate about. So, uh, you know, I love talking about the culture we've built, how companies can, can kind of adapt and be a little more employee focused, try and focus on things that I'm most passionate about, even if it's not kind of uh, my core default behavior. Well, what would you say has been the biggest challenge you've had then? It's probably been the pace, right? So I'm competitive in nature. I'm actually the father of four boys. So it's, you know, constant competition everywhere around my house. And so frankly, the the pace in which I often ran before was probably too fast and too much, especially when it came to global travel, right? I, I'd hop on a plane for an hour meeting on the West Coast of the United States, right? And and I think so many of us kind of did, but it would just be a constant grind. Uh, you know, I, I remember one trip where, uh, I think I hit Boston, Tokyo, Singapore, Cluj, Romania, Valencia, and London within a 10-day span, right? And so like, that's actually really challenging to do. And I think I, I think I was on an airplane, slept on an airplane like four nights or something. So like those types of runs were just crazy in hindsight, right? I didn't get enough time in any location and I should have split, split it up. But again, I was doing it so often that there was just kind of a, a constant wheel that you felt like you were on. And so I, I would say that was by far the biggest challenge, right? To, to now, I, I think I, reflecting back, I would definitely do it different, right? I'd go and you know spend a, spend a week in Singapore. I may not do it four times a year, five times a year, like I normally would have done, but I'd have longer trips that probably I could put more activity around uh, with the people in those areas. Areas. And what about communications challenges? What would you say that like the biggest one of that's been for you? Sometimes I'm probably overly transparent. You know, I'm really realizing, especially as the company's getting bigger, there's a lot of folks who who may not want to know all the detail. You know, there's almost constant level of decision making that the executives and I have on a daily basis. Some of those decisions are hard, right? If you look at just the pandemic right? You have uncertainty, right? People want to know what the future of work is, for instance. And I tell flymates, I can't tell you what the future of work is, right? Like I I can't mandate it, right? That's the wrong answer. I can try, but it's the wrong thing. Our engineering team may need a different future of work than our sales team, right? And so part of it is about us figuring it out together. And so sometimes I think being that direct and that transparent may actually sometimes push these complex decisions onto other people that don't necessarily want them and show a level of uncertainty, even though I think that's the reality of the world. And so I'd say that's, that's the balance for me. Uh, you know, I know other CEOs who just go in and say, hey, this is the future of work. This is what we're doing. This is how we're going to be organized. And to me, it's just too simplistic of an answer, right? And so I try and, I try and convey that. But at the same time, some people may see that as, um, as kind of pushing, pushing the challenging topics onto other shoulders, which isn't the intent, just an aspect of transparency. You need to confidently talk about the uncertainty. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that's the balance I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure out. Just staying with communications, has anyone ever given you any great advice that you would kind of want to pass on to someone else because it's made a real difference for you as far as communications is concerned? So I have a, I have a chairman, uh, you know, he, he ran major divisions of American Express for years. Uh, he's on the board of a number of tech companies, Betterment, Yo-Yo Wallet, Remitly, Flywire. He has a way in which when he's talking and oftentimes, you know, think, think of the CEOs that he's on the, he's on the board of their companies, they, like myself, they come to him with these ridiculous challenges, problems, complex things. And his ability to reflect, like first pause and then reflect. Like most people want to jump in with an answer. And that's my default behavior too. It's like, you know, you you, you throw a huge challenge at me and I'm, I'm going to start answering it or giving you direction. 
which drives my wife crazy as well, right? She's always like, sometimes I just want you to listen, right? So not try and solve every problem. And my chairman does a great job where he will often reflect and he can actually, he'll actually pause a conversation and he'll say, you know, let me reflect on that. And he'll take 30, 60, 90 seconds before even uttering another word. And then he'll come out with an actually well thought out, well articulated point that's been a that's been something I've been trying to uh, leverage more because I think the default, especially in, a, in 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 tech companies and startups, it's to fix stuff, it's to change stuff, it's to try stuff, and so you're kind of like you know maybe shoot first, aim aim second, and uh, and when it comes to communication, sometimes if you just take that pause, if you really think through it, you can actually organize your thoughts in a better way. So that's something I've, I've been trying to work on a lot more. That's great advice. Yeah, brilliant. Mike, we've got one final question for you. It's a question we've asked all our unicorn leaders on on these interviews. If you were to go back in time and speak to your old self, what guidance would you give about communications and what steps would you encourage yourself to take in order for you and your business to excel in communications? Yeah. Um, and like your chairman, you can take 30 seconds to, I'm, to think I'm about gonna, it if you yeah, want. Yeah, I am going to take a, a minute to think about it. What I would say is it's tied to communications. When you're communicating, it's so important to understand who you're communicating to and how best to get your point across to that person. And one thing I've, I've found in the last 20 years in business has been people are barely able to understand themselves, what made them who they are today, how they were brought up, uh, the challenges they faced in their life. And the more you can understand about that and who they truly are, what gets communicated to them, how do they react to information, what's the best way to interact with them, like those types of things are actually really personal. And oftentimes, I think people have broad communication strategies, right, where they try and do the same thing to different people. And, and so that uniqueness of an individual, I think, is really, really important. Uh, you know, I have some execs who, you know, my walking uh, random one-on-one, no agenda sync up that goes 90 minutes every two months is like all we need to connect. I have other execs that I work closely with who, if we, if we miss a checkpoint every five days, our relationship's off the tracks, right? And we got to get it back. So uh, I think oftentimes people think of communication as kind of, you know, I get to decide it. I'm the communicator. I'm the person communicating. And the reality is it's kind of a two-way, two-way street, right? It has to work for both parties for, for the relationship to, to, to really be great. Tremendous. Uh, Really enjoyed this one. Thank you so much. Uh, Mike Massaro, thanks uh, for joining us online to chat. Thanks, Mike. Russell, Brendan, thanks so much. Wow, Brendan, the first of our unicorn leaders from North America. Thoughts on what Mike had to say and, and maybe comparing it to all the discussions we had with our European unicorn leaders. I mean, I thought it was really fascinating just to, to get a, a sense of like everything that's going on within the payment space and how Flywire has really sort of zeroed in on some of those more complex areas. But I think um, in terms of chatting to Mike, I think what impressed me and kind of made a real impact on me is how thoughtful he's been about everything that they're doing with the business. And you kind of pick up a real tenacity and focus about everything that they're doing, whether that's for customers or whether that's for employees. I just think the combination of that thoughtfulness, but then that's the kind of like tenacity and focus in the execution of what they're doing really um, kind of 
sort of shone through for me. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be interesting uh, interviewing our North American leaders moving forward. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it really will be interesting. I imagine as, after we've spoken to a few people, we'll be able, might be able to draw some quick conclusions. I can't, I, I can't say that at this particular point I'd want to kind of make any sweeping no. generalisations. No, no, not at all. Well, that's actually it for this uh, latest episode of our Unicorn Interviews with Taito. If you want to find out more about Flywire, then their website is uh, very simply flywire.com. We'd love to hear your comments on today's chat and you can share those on our facebook linkedin instagram or twitter feeds they're all linked from the top of the website at csweetpodcast.com uh, where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of spotify and apple and if you've liked what you've heard then please do give us a positive rating and review uh, we're also available on all podcast apps just search for the c-suite podcast and hit subscribe uh, don't forget you can also subscribe to the without borders podcast from our partners at Titan and all the details for that are on their website just head to Taito PR and click on the podcast link in the top nav bar if you are a unicorn leader yourself and you'd like to be part of this series please do get in touch with us via the contact form on the website and of course anyone can get in touch with the show uh, using that form and give us any feedback you may have Uh, you can also reach me via twitter using at Ross Goldsmith or you can find me on LinkedIn but for now thanks for listening and goodbye (laughs) 